You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do need you. We pray that you would conform our lives to yours, our hopes to yours, our plans to yours. God, give us wisdom, we pray. We long for it. Give us a heart of wisdom by the work of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Is there something happening this weekend? Are the Broncos playing right now? No? No no Greek fest? Where is everybody? Hello. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, Well, we have spent uh, six weeks introducing the book of Proverbs in considering the urgent need to pursue wisdom. That is, wisdom as a way of life, a way of walking down the road informed and shaped by what is best. Here's the thing. Oftentimes, you will have uh, on a road, a fork in the road. Oftentimes, not even just maybe a decision to make, but even just things in front of you in which you have two morally neutral options in front of you, morally equivalent choices. And most of these issues require wisdom, where there might be multiple choices, letting the Proverbs and wisdom then beginning to shape us into a person who is wise, making these decisions clearer, easier, and more more honoring to the Lord. Now, remember, remember six weeks ago or so from our intro into the book of Proverbs, uh, the Proverbs, what you just heard Nat read, if you're listening to or reading those as if that was like a gospel account or a letter that Paul wrote. We shouldn't do that. Everything that he read is just one pithy, memorable phrase, followed by another pithy, memorable phrase. These are meant to be memorized and recalled throughout our lives. They are meant to be like pulled out and then applied at the right time. Just like we do with our own Proverbs. You know this, right? We have many, many Proverbs. Every culture has Proverbs that you use. Like when our kids or our subordinates at work or somebody, we, we, we just, we, we've tried, we've given them so much instruction, but they just keep messing things up. What do we say? We say something like, well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. This is a proverb that we have used in that situation. But we use that proverb in a specific situation, in the right situation. It would be very strange for us to like get a promotion at work and your manager, upon news that he has just offered you a promotion, you say, well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That is the wrong or the right proverb for the wrong context. We must use the right proverbs in the right 
context. The Proverbs are a compilation of these pithy, memorable one-liners, a toolbox that then requires wisdom for us to, as we carry this toolbox around with us for the, right, for the rest of our lives, to then open and pull out the right tool at the right moment. Now, again, remember, these are not absolute truths. There are parents who absolutely train up a child in the way that he should go, and then the child nevertheless turns from wisdom, turns from the Lord. These are not universal truths, but they are observationally and generally true about the way things are. Remember, these are kind of like understanding a a paper airplane. There are rules for folding a paper airplane just right so that it will actually fly the furthest. The Proverbs speak generally about wisdom, a lot about the pursuit of it. And oftentimes then, once we learn about wisdom, then there are specific general Proverbs for us to pull out and use at the right moment. And so, since after we've spent the first six weeks introducing this introduction to the book, now uh, I asked Nat to read a section of the Proverbs that have a lot to do with decision-making. We're going to think about decision-making, but oftentimes I'm going to give you a lot of Proverbs tonight about decision-making and about the will of God that come from all over the book. There's seemingly not a ton of rhyme or reason for why some proverb comes here or there. There is some. But this, if ever there is a book for us to think through issues topically, this is it. We are going to think about decision-making tonight. Decision-making and the will of God as the Proverbs speak to this area all over the book. But really briefly, let me just remind you of our commitment to actual, pre- actual preaching expositionally. Uh, expositional preaching just means to expose, to expose the meaning of the text that we are considering. So we want to structure, we want to, we want, we want to shape and understand the actual structure and meaning and emphasis of the text so that that actually becomes the structure, the meaning, and the emphasis of our sermons here, that the main point of the text is the main point of the sermon. And what that doesn't necessarily mean is that we will say everything that could possibly be said about every verse of each chapter that we are thinking or are preaching through. It's pretty unlikely uh, that we are ever going to preach sermons at like a two or three verse clip per per week. Uh, That's why uh, undoubtedly we could have spent more time in Proverbs 8 and 9 last week for sure, but I think we got the main meaning and emphasis of that text. So this week though, having said all that, we are going to start a topical walk through the Proverbs. Um, This is something I thought a lot about, decision making, ever since I was a a young lad. Uh, I, I mean, I think I was probably younger than this, but I remember as a sophomore in high school, uh, one of my friends, her sister was a senior in high school. And she had, this senior, when I was a sophomore in high school, had just applied to uh, Texas A&M, Texas Tech, and the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas. Those were the schools that she was hoping to get into one of them. And uh, these were all good and morally viable options in front of her, weren't they? And I remember hanging out with this family one weekend as she had all of her applications out and was just waiting to hear back from these universities. I will never forget what she said when I was like 15 and I heard her say this and I didn't know quite what to do with it. She said, I'm just going to wait to hear from God. That is, 
If she got into all three universities, then she would just wait to hear from God on what she should do next. And as a 15-year-old, I was thinking, wow, how? How are you going to do that? Like, I had never had an experience like that as a 15-year-old, where I had heard an audible voice from God or something like that, some, uh, like, plain contrail in the sky that said, Texas A&M or something. So I was really wondering, now as a 15-year-old, like, how, how do you make these decisions when I'm a senior in high school? How am I going to hear from God? What should I do? There are few times in our lives where we actually have these kinds of life-altering decisions in front of us. Where should I go to college? Should I go to college? Should I quit my job? Should I take this job? Should I move across the country to take this job? And these fork-in-the-road moments can actually be quite stressful for us. But every single day, even if we don't have these seemingly life-altering decisions in front of us, we have thousands of decisions that we make every day. What should I eat for breakfast? Should I eat breakfast? Should I leave early for work or class today so that I can get a little bit more done? Should I uh, get to work or school today on the interstates or on the city streets? Should I spend money on lunch today or should I save some money by packing a lunch? Should I donate a dollar to breast cancer research? Does my not donating a dollar to breast cancer research make me a reprehensible moral monster because I am for breast cancer? That's what I feel like every time. They're like, would you like to donate a dollar? I'm like, no, nah. oh, yes. Never mind. Should I say something to my boss or to my coworker about this really frustrating thing? Should I watch one more episode or go to sleep? Should I watch this show at all? Thousands of decisions, like every minute of our life that are built upon each other, that are built upon each other. They are, our lives are full of decisions, some big, most small, all important. And so we're going to use the Proverbs today to help us think through the, the who and the how. And so that's how we'll think through this tonight with two questions. Who decides and how should we decide? The Proverbs have much to say in answering these two questions. Who decides and how should we decide? So first question, who decides? When we make all of these decisions every single day, who makes these decisions? We do. We have seen over and over and over again over the past six weeks the need and the urgency for humans to choose wisdom. So we saw in chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, we read, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. We must freely choose wisdom. We are told all throughout the Proverbs to choose wisdom, to choose wisdom like a bride, to choose wisdom like the better of two roads, to choose wisdom as the better of two dinner tables, to choose wisdom as the better of two women, one wise, one foolish, one of life, and one of death. Solomon has a very, very high view of our choices in both the imperative of choosing wisely and in our ability to then actually make wise decisions. 
So in Proverbs 21, verse 5, and by the way, I'm not putting all these up on the screen. If you just want to keep track of some of these, uh, maybe just write 21.5 and go back and think, think through all these later on this week as you go back and reconsider this sermon. But in Proverbs 21.5, we read, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That's a, that's a memorable phrase for you to stow away in your toolbox to be used later. But what this proverb is saying is that there is a very clear cause and effect relationship in our universe. The plans of the diligent lead to abundance. But if you are hasty, if you don't make plans, this will bring ruin, will bring poverty, cause and effect. And we like this, don't we? We like the idea of cause and effect. We as humans, or at least maybe as Americans, we hate the idea of fate. In movies with the classical Greek or Roman gods like Troy or Clash of the Titans or something, like we root for the characters, characters to break free from the gods, to break free from their predetermined fate. Or in like every single movie that has anything to do with time travel. It's all about something being pre-ordered, predetermined. One of my favorite philosophers of all time, Dr. Emmett Brown, once poignantly said, your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. Back to the future three. Likewise, the Proverbs, time and time and time again, demand human choice. Your future is, that's a proverb that Doc Brown gives. Your future is whatever you make of it, so make it a good one. In the same way, the Proverbs demand human choice, demand human free will. They, they, all of this directs cause and effect. We'll see and think about that next week as we think about work and vocation. There's very real cause and effect with our work, with our diligence. And yet, on the other hand, the Proverbs, while the Proverbs over and over and over again demand, elevate, affirm human free will and responsibility, cause and effect, the Proverbs simultaneously affirm God's sovereignty over it all. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what lots are when we read of casting lots. We're not quite sure exactly what those were or what it looked like, but it's probably something like dice. And so what we just read in the book of Proverbs is that every dice roll is from the Lord. At Sandia and Isleta. Every single thing that happens in that room with dice or with cards is from the Lord. Solomon is here saying that all of it is actually decided. Not just every decision, but everything in the universe. He the, Solomon here says the, the lot is cast in the lap. He's trying to think of like the most seemingly minuscule, unimportant, and random event in the universe, and even it is in the Lord's hand. Which supports what R.C. Sproul says, that if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If the universe is just one chain reaction event caused by another, then something, I mean, like, you know, like the butterfly effect or something, then it's possible that a butterfly flapping its wings in Peru 
could absolutely shape and change the events of all of our lives if it's just chain reactions. We cannot actually be sure that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Proverbs 16:9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of man plans a way, but then the Lord establishes the steps. We can make plans and decisions, but God is establishing which step and in which direction. God is simultaneously over our decisions. While we like the idea of bucking fate, I at least am really glad that God is sovereign over my small life. I make terrible decisions. I'm glad that my kid's salvation is not merely dependent upon my faithfulness as a parent. I'm glad that despite all of the pain and suffering in this world, that God says that he is still sovereign over it. The alternative of God not being sovereign over all of this is far worse than him being sovereign over a world of pain and suffering. That We can say, I sing through shade and sunshine. He is good. I don't understand things all the time, but he is still good. He is still wise, and he is still more powerful than all of it. But this presents a bit of a conundrum for us philosophically, doesn't it? Which is it? Did Lisa, my friend's older sister, when she chose to stay in Denton, Texas and go to the University of North Texas, did she decide to go to North Texas or did God decide to go to North Texas? Do we decide or does God predetermine our decisions? Yes. We are both absolutely free and we are simultaneously absolutely determined. Now, we, I mean, we've talked about some of these things here on Sundays together and in book clubs and other things else. It's very possible that God can shape our desires so that we actually are freely choosing the things that he wants us to think and decide upon. And yet, the scriptures are just clear in how this, these things are absolutely not in contradiction with each other. Solomon, along with Moses and David and Isaiah and Jesus and John and Luke and Paul and many other biblical writers absolutely see human responsibility and God's sovereignty perfectly working together. These are two sides of the same coin. These are like looking at this side of the binoculars and then turning in the round and looking at this side of the binoculars. Same vision, it's just seeing things differently. They are not contradicting each other, even though this causes us like philosophical headaches. The theological category for this is called compatibilism, that both human freedom and God's sovereignty are still compatible with each other. We've thought about this story before, but think about the story of Joseph. Perhaps he's a a snot-nosed brat as a young teen. His brothers are jealous and violent of him, so they decide to leave him for dead. Then they decide, hey, why not make a little cash out of this? So they sell him off to slavery. He's sent to Egypt. He starts to succeed there. Maybe he thinks, hey, maybe this wasn't so bad. But then he's falsely accused of assault. He's imprisoned. While he's imprisoned, he begins to interpret some dreams. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He's elected to essentially vice president of Egypt. Then his starving brothers come to Egypt and ask for food, and they don't recognize him. And then when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, they're afraid for their lives, and he tells them, 
He says in Genesis 50, verse 20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Did the brothers decide to sell him? Yes. Did Potiphar freely decide to buy him? Yes. Did Potiphar's wife freely decide to falsely accuse him? Yes. Did the brothers freely decide to come to Egypt? Yes. Was God directing the entire thing? Yes. Proverbs 16, verse 4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. If we read that proverb completely by itself in isolation, without reading many of the other proverbs and the rest of the Bible, we might conclude that God is the author of evil, that he creates wickedness, he creates wicked people to do wickedness, that he purposes the wicked to do wicked things. We don't want to get too bogged down here, but we need to say a few things, that God is sovereign over all things, including that people would love him, and that people don't. He is sovereign over animals and angels, over demons and death, over suffering and sin. And this is what theologians call God's will of decree. Think about the word to decree. I decree that this might happen. This is God's will of decree. And God's will of decree is that which actually happens. For my own biography, again, uh, we ended up in Albuquerque through many, 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 many events. In 1998, a uh, 20-something young guy moved to Denton, Texas from San Antonio and became a youth leader at Denton Bible Church where I was uh, a, a high school kid. Uh, or at that point, I was an eighth grader. And Luke Harbor, this guy from moved, moved from San Antonio, he, we, he and I stayed close all through high school. And Luke knew of another kid that was my age back from his hometown in San Antonio named Aaron Collier. And uh, he said, hey, I know that both of you guys are going to be freshmen at the University of Texas at the same time. You should be roommates. And so we did. And then uh, Aaron and I both ended up going to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And then Aaron got hired as a youth pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, and his senior pastor at his church in Irving, Texas, was college roommates with a guy named Ryan Kelly, who was the preaching pastor at Desert Springs. They were roommates in college together. And so these guys, all of these pastors were hanging out, and Ryan said, hey, we're looking for a youth pastor at our church in Albuquerque, and my friend Aaron, who I went to undergraduate and seminary with, said, hey, I know a guy. You should call Nathan Sherman. He's in Austin right now. And then that happened, and we came to Albuquerque to be—I was the youth pastor at Desert Springs for four years, and then we planted this church. All that to say, if Luke Harbor had not moved from San Antonio to Denton, Texas in 1998, I wouldn't be here, I'm pretty sure. Like, that is a crazy amount of, like, cause and effect chain reaction events that got us to New Mexico. God is sovereign over all things, good and evil, Joseph and his brothers. And what we can say is that it was God's will that we moved to Albuquerque. Throughout all of those things that happened, there were sinful circumstances in all of those. Aaron and I got into fights and stuff. We sinned against each other. And yet, it is God's will of decree that we moved to Albuquerque, that we actually wanted to be part of a church plant and those kinds of things. And so it is when we look back and say that is what happened in history, we can say that was God's will of decree. 
His will is what actually happened or happens in the world. So if one side of, God, of the God's will coin is God's will of decree, what actually happens, the other side of that coin is God's will of desire. That is, not what actually happens, but what he actually wants and desires that, of, of his creatures. That is to say, as one theologian says, if the will of decree is how things are, the will, the will of desire is how things ought to be. Now, we're like in the philosophical and theological weeds here, but all of this is really important. God says many times throughout his word what he desires of us. Just consider 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, where Paul says, for this is the will of God. If you guys are all looking for the will of God in your life, here it is. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the will of God for you in your life. There's other many parts of God's will of desire for you, but that's one of them. That's what he desires for you. Now, it's certainly true that he desires many other things for you and from you, that you would repent of your sin, that you would walk by the Spirit, that you would align with the church, that you would consider the needs of others to be more important than of your own. That is all God's will of desire for you. So did God desire or coerce Joseph's brothers to sell him to Egypt? Did he desire Potiphar's wife to falsely accuse him? No. He did not desire them to sin. They are responsible. And in him, there is, in God, there is no darkness at all. God desires holiness from all of his creatures. He does not coerce unrighteousness or sin. But at the same time, he did decree that it would be so that Joseph was sold. Again, this is really difficult to think through, but this is what actually happened. So we can say that it was God's will for this to happen. It can be really confusing, and there is a degree of mystery that we must just admit to and worship God in. But the reason I bring any of this up is because I think so many of us get paralyzed in decision-making because we assume that God's will of decree, that is what actually will happen, as his, his will of decree is just as discernible as his will of desire. Does this make sense? This is why Lisa could not make a decision on whether to go to AM or Texas Tech or UNT. She thought that choosing between one of these three schools was just as discernible as, as like the question of, does God want me to pray? Does God want me to repent of my sin and walk by the Spirit? Like these are also decisions and choices, and one is very clear for what God wants of us. One is not so clear. God gives a very clear answer to, should I pray? Yes, you should. Does he give a clear answer to, where should I go to college? No, he doesn't. And so, if the answer to should I expect God to speak to me as clearly in some of these life decisions as he does for what I actually know that he wants from me as a Christian, if the answer to that is no, then how do we make these decisions? How do I decide where to go to college? How do I decide if I should go to college? How do I decide what flavor of ice cream to eat tonight? Well, we walk by the Spirit. We become wise. In Kevin DeYoung's 
excellent little book, Just Do Something. This is a book all about decision-making. He says this. Here's the real heart of the matter. Does God have a secret will of direction that he expects us to figure out before we do anything? Yes, God has a specific plan for our life, he says. And yes, we can be assured that he works things for our good in Christ Jesus. And yes, looking back, we will often be able to trace God's hand in bringing us to where we are. But while we are free to ask God for wisdom, he does not burden us with the task of divining his will of direction in our lives ahead of time. So he says, what I'm saying is that we should stop thinking of God's will like a corn maze or a tightrope or a bullseye or a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Did you guys read choose-your-own-adventure novels? I used to check out every single one from the Emily Fowler Public Library in Denton, Texas. And I had a little piece of paper, lots of, I had like far side daily uh, calendars, and I would use those old far side tear off things to be like my 17 bookmarks in the Choose Your Own Adventure novels to make sure that I went back to every page and found every single possible ending. Like, if you went to the, if you chose the wrong one on page 23 and you like went down this road in the cave and then Oops, in that cave was a volcano and you die. So let's go try to find a different ending that turned out a little better. But don't we tend to think about decision-making very similarly? We might put a little bookmark in that decision six months ago or six years ago so that we might be able to determine, was that the right decision or wasn't it? That if we go to the wrong college or we marry the wrong person, or we get the wrong job, maybe we'll somehow be outside of God's will for our life. We made the wrong decision. We should, as Christians and as humans, just let go and let God, right? Not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Let go and let God is not in the Bible. That is not in the book of Proverbs. What is in the Bible is Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. This verse isn't exactly as it first appears. We think it might be saying, commit your plans to the Lord. Like if you're deciding you're going to quit your job and raise a bunch of money and have a new startup venture in town, if you just pray about it and commit these plans to the Lord, then God will make, these, make your startup succeed, and he will bless your plans. That's not exactly what it says. What it says is commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will be established. It's not commit your plans and whatever you do will succeed. Commit your work, whatever you do, your life, and he will establish. What does this mean? Like, it's kind of like he builds a foundation under it. He will make firm your plans. Commit, this word commit means kind of literally to roll over on. If I commit my body to my bed, I am, that's what this word actually means. Commit your body to your bed. Commit your plans to the Lord. Roll over on the Lord, trusting him completely, unconditionally, in good and bad circumstances. And when we do this, then your plans will be established. You will actually begin to make wiser decisions. And I think this kind of thing is what David has in mind in Psalm 37, 4. Where he says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is not 
just find some happiness in God and he will give you a Ferrari? No, when we are truly delighting in the Lord, he doesn't conform to our desires, but we actually conform to his. And so, in summary of all these things, Kevin DeYoung says, the question God cares about most is not, where should I live? But, do I love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and do I love my neighbor as myself? And it's that second question that gets at the heart of God's will for your life. Did you, did you get this? It's not that God is unconcerned about where or if you should go to college. It is not as if God is unconcerned about if you should move across the country. It is not as, as if God is unconcerned about whether you should date that guy or girl or marry that guy or girl. But are you loving God and loving people? Are you pursuing wisdom? And when you are, you will be making godly decisions. Your will conformed to his. Your desires conformed to his. And it's not that God never guides us. He does so through his word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. David writes, he's a lamp in a dark forest. God's, God does give us wisdom. And he gives us wisdom and direction through his people. Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. That's common sense wisdom. If you just make a plan really quickly and don't ever ask anybody about it, it's likely that that plan is going to fail. Invite counsel. Invite wisdom of other wise people into your life. These plans will be successful, generally. Commit. Roll yourself onto the Lord, and he will establish these plans. So it's not that God never guides us and gives us wisdom in these decision-making processes, but we, never, we, we no longer have the, the umim or the urim and the thumim, do we? Do you know what these are? The urim and the thumim? These are some stones that were in the, the high priest's uh, breastplate in the Old Testament. And we don't know how they would use them they would use them to ask God, kind of like the casting of lots, ask God, should we as the priesthood and as the, your people do this or do this? And we do not have those. We want that, perhaps. Should I quit this job? Should I ask her to marry me? Whatever it is, it'd be really nice sometimes if we just had a uh, dice roll or some seemingly like magic rocks. But even if we want that, we can even convince ourselves that we actually do have that, that we are making the right decisions, that we have made a decision and we have a peace about it. Or God told me this. How many of you have used that before or have had someone tell you that before? That God told me this, so therefore I'm doing this. I've been praying about this for a few days, so I'm pretty sure that God wants us to date. Or, I've been praying about this for a few days, and I'm pretty sure that God wants us not to date. And when that happens, you can't get mad at the person who just broke up with you because the Holy Spirit broke up with you. But the reality is this. Chapter 16, Proverbs 16, verse 2. That all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. All of the ways seem right, but it is... God who's weighing if it is right. Here's the thing. While it's true that as we are growing in wisdom, 
Sometimes the peace that we feel isn't necessarily from God. So instead of directly guiding us with a voice from heaven, God actually makes us, by his spirit, through his word, surrounded by his people, into people who can make God-guided decisions, who don't need to just pray about it for a couple of days and expect to hear God to give me a very clear answer that this is the way I should move forward in my life. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. There is something inside going on that guides the people who are walking with God, that we are just able to make decisions. Being one who is capable of making God-guided decisions, though, requires us to be people who are rolling over on him, who are delighting in him. We have to understand his holiness is as incomparable, as beautiful, as desirable. To understand our sin as rebellion and as vile. And to find ultimate delight and satisfaction in the cross of Christ that brings us life, that brings us forgiveness, adoption, and brings us wisdom to roll all of our weight onto him. We are satisfied in him, not just a change in circumstances. Remember how we've thought about singleness, that if you are not content in Christ as a single person, you will not be content in Christ as a married person. Well, likewise, if you are not content in Christ in your current job, you will not be content in Christ in your next job. If you are not content in Christ in Albuquerque, you will not be content in Christ somewhere else. If you are not content in Christ as a high school student, you will not be content in Christ as a college student. If you are not content in Christ as a college student, you will not be content as a a college graduate. And on and on and on. Whatever circumstances you think that will finally make you happy, the, the, the circumstances will not bring you contentment. Christ will. And so this just tells us to roll our lives onto him, to commit our lives, commit our plans to him, to commit our lives upon Jesus, and then become Jesus people, Christ people, Christians, to walk with him, people who are united to Christ, and then just live their life in happy faith, growing, maturing, I was so encouraged by one of you just a few weeks ago who shared that you made a really big life decision by the phrase, which is the title of another decision-making book, just called The Next Right Thing. You just did the next right thing, just like Kristen Bell in Frozen 2 told you to do. Just making a series of small, faithful decisions. The next decision that gets put in front of you, just Do what is honoring to the Lord. Even making a decision on your own so that by the time you're getting to a place where the seemingly big decision is in front of you, you've just trained yourself to make decisions as is pleasing to the Lord, as you're loving him and loving others. Like if God emailed us the plan for every single day of our lives, we would just have to look at the plan and not look to him, right? If God emailed you every decision that you were to make this week, you would not need him. You would just need the plan. You would not need to be transformed into his likeness. 
Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, that when we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into his holiness. When we look to Christ instead of just the plan for decisions, we become like him. So when delight in the Lord or commit your work to the Lord is the ultimate guide for decision-making, when unconditional trust and committing or rolling all of our weight onto him becomes the way of our life, this allows us to freely, freely decide and at the same time to be guided by him. We grow in wisdom in navigating what seems to be equally moral choices. And yet, even as people who are growing in wisdom and in godliness, sometimes we do need some help, some further help in making decisions. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent, uh, sure, we've thought it through this already, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes to poverty. We should not make hasty decisions. We should think through things clearly and deliberately. And so, Ryan Kelly at Desert Springs and drawing on another book on decision-making has given, put together nine really, really helpful questions to ask of ourselves when we're making decisions. Option A or option B. Uh, I think we may, maybe we can include these in the weekly email this week, but I just want to run through these. Just jot these down. These are super helpful. If you've got, again, vanilla or chocolate tonight at Coldstone, maybe you don't run through these questions. Uh, but maybe some of the bigger questions in your life, these are really, really helpful to think through. The first question is, does it violate any of God's will? Does choosing option A violate any of God's revealed will? Like, God told me to divorce my wife because I think I'd be a little happier without the responsibilities of family. I assure you, God did not tell you that. That is contrary to God's will. You saying I have a peace about this is not peace. Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way which seems right to a man, but, in its, but its end is in the way of death. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it is something. So. Understand the scriptures. Does option A or option B, option B violate any of God's revealed will? Second, what is the best option for the furtherance of God's kingdom? That's a great question to ask. Will me moving to this place help to advance the kingdom or not? Will me taking this job help to advance the kingdom or not? We might not have a very clear answer on that. That's why it's one of nine questions. Question three, how has the Lord opened or closed doors? This isn't always a reliable guide, but it's a possible indicator. Like if God keeps closing this door over and over and over and over again, perhaps it's wise to stop banging your head trying to break through. Question four, what option best suits your gifts, your talents, your passions? If you tell me, that you think that God is directing you to be an NFL football player, but you're 43 and you run a, like a 10-9, 40-yard dash, I don't think that's God's will for your life, man. Like, what are your gifts, your talents, your passions? What are you good at? If everyone around you is telling you you're a terrible singer, stop going to the American Idol auditions. What is, verse, or question five, what is the wisdom of others who are more experienced or wise? Like, this seems obvious, but we are proud and hard-headed. 
Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Are you teachable? What are others around you telling you? Invite wisdom. Ask for wisdom in this decision. Question six, and here's a big one, especially as we're growing in sanctification. What do you want to do? That doesn't seem like a godly question to ask. But when our desires are becoming his desires, where do you want to work? Who do you want to marry? Do you want to get married? Like our desires can be deceiving, but our desires as we're growing in godliness can be a good decision-making process, a guide. Question seven, are sinful motivations directing your thinking? This is similar to the first question, but it's getting a little bit deeper. Are sinful motivations behind or trying to direct one decision over the other? Do you want to join some, some club at UNM because you think there's lots of attractive, guy, attractive guys and girls there that you want to impress and to get to know? Do you want some job change merely because of success and approval? Success and approval aren't necessarily bad things, but if that's the reason for taking this job over the other one, is there something dark there that's guiding this decision? Question eight, what are the long-term consequences, good and bad, of either option? We rarely think about long-term, only the now. Like, will this pay me more tomorrow? Then yes, I should take that job. Well, what are some long-term consequences of taking that job? What are some long-term consequences, good or bad, of this decision over that decision? And then lastly, number nine, are there unique temptations with either option? Answering that question requires wisdom almost requires you to be able to see into the future. Is this decision going to lead me more towards light, toward following Christ more nearly, or is this going to lead me, I think, towards darkness, toward unrighteousness, towards sin? So as we have these frameworks, as we become people who are mature and wise, we are actually able to make decisions. Uh, today, Bennett, my seven-year-old, he still rightly comes to me and asks, hey, can I go throw the Frisbee in the, front, in, in the street? And I say, well, yeah, I guess. Just make sure that you, and your, you have a, a brother with you and that you're calling game off when there are cars and all that stuff. But in 13 or 14 years, if I'm meeting with one of you and Bennett's in college and he calls me, he's like, dad, can I go throw the Frisbee with some of my friends? I'm like, man, grow up, dude. Make a decision. Just do it. Yes or no? I don't care. What do you want to do? So as we mature spiritually, these nine questions are growing in wisdom through the whole of the scriptures, are becoming members of churches who will surround us with wisdom. All of these things, all of those nine questions should actually kind of become ingrained in us so that we don't have to like pull out the sheet or when you've got a decision in front of you 10 years ago, you've got to like search through your old inbox from Christchurch weekly emails. What were those questions again? I don't know. We become wise. We do the next right thing. We make decisions. Sometimes what we want to do, all the time, hopefully what is pleasing to the Lord, what is loving to our neighbor as we become wise in Christ. Let's pray that he might help us to become that kind of people 
in that kind of church. Lord, you have established our plans. You establish our decisions. You know our hearts. You weigh them. Sometimes, oftentimes, we make decisions that are not honoring to you, that are merely selfish, that are merely about self-promotion. Help us to weigh these things. Help us to discern these things. Help us to be deliberate, conscientious decision makers as we walk through our lives. But God, we pray that by your spirit, you might give us, you might lift burdens, that you might give us freedom to just walk lightly as we make decisions that are pleasing to you, that are loving to our neighbor, that are good for our church, that are good for the unbelieving world around us. We pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of Jesus, the very revealed wisdom of God. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.